Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at brightviewseniorliving.com. And I'm going to go into that house, and I'm going to hide, and I'm going to live there. I'm going to be a Victorian child. One of the things you can do in hoodoo is take dirt from someone's grave to cast spells. And it's a very specific grave. Like if you want protection, you can take dirt from a soldier's grave, for example. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Laura Wexler. And I'm Jessica Hinkin. And this week on the podcast, we're wrapping up our Best of the Stoop series with two stories from women who share personal tales about being visited by spirits. So if you are listening to this on the day it's coming out, today, Monday, October 11th, we are happy to say this is the night of our first in-person live Stoop show since February 2020. So, well, in person, indoors. Indoors, you're right. Indoors, in person, live, in real life. What else can we say about it? But we're really freaking excited. Uh, I can't believe it's happening. So before we get started, we want to thank our uh, sponsor for the podcast who have been so awesome about sponsoring the podcast and just helping us stay afloat during this fun time in which we're not able to see people. Uh, and that is the Park School, which is an independent co-educational non-sectarian progressive pre-K through grade 12 school located on this beautiful 100 acre campus just minutes from Baltimore. Okay, so this first story of Conjuring comes from the just lovely, stylish, elegant, chic Alexandra Deutsch. So at the time she shared the story, Alexandra was at the Maryland Historical Society, um, and so that sort of explains or, or is in line with all of her interest in, um, in historical fashion and um, decoration and all of that stuff. And actually now, she is the Director of Collections at Winterthur uh, Museum, Garden, and Library. Um, so that is perfect for her, as you will hear when you listen to the story. So I have always been obsessed with the past, fanatically obsessed with the past. When I was three years old, this is one of my earliest memories, my parents took me to Colonial Williamsburg, and I cried when we left, like it had been Disney, like, like I had seen Mickey and I was leaving him because I wanted to live in the 18th century, and I, I was three. So by the time I was about eight, my parents would take me to the Newark Museum in New Jersey. And attached to the Newark Museum was the Ballantine Mansion, which was built in 1885. And at night, I would lie in bed, and I would think to myself, one day they're going to take me, and I'm going to go into that house, and I'm going to hide, and I'm going to live there. 
I'm going to be a Victorian child. <laughs> this did not abate this fantasy. And in my adult life, it had various manifestations. But in 2007, when my husband and my daughter and I moved into our house in Bolton Hill that was built in 1894, you can only imagine. I had a stage set for my obsession. In 2009, I was sitting at my kitchen table. It was the fall, and my husband's working on his computer. He's a scientist. He's probably analyzing genetic information. And I say to him, I think we should have an 1896 Christmas dinner party. And just like he always does when I say these things, he says, sure. <laughs> and I get this idea because in 1896, Fanny Farmer published her cookbook. And when that cookbook came out, that was the cookbook to own. And I think to myself, that cookbook must have been in my house. And Fanny Farmer is speaking to me and telling me that we are going to make a 14-course Victorian dinner in this house. And my husband doesn't protest. And we are going to dress like it is 1896. Now, to have a Victorian dinner party without servants is an act of insanity. <laughs> but no, we are going to do it because Fanny says, and this cookbook has four pages of instructions about this 14-course dinner, and now it is planning a war. It is like an invasion of a small country. I make diagrams. I make lists. I make all kinds of purchases on eBay. I buy things like a fork that you use only to eat celery. <laughs> and now we come to that night before the dinner party, and it is time to set the table. And my husband, who indulges this continual merchant ivory, ivory film in my head that just keeps going and going and going, and I'm in it, all the time. He is going to help me set the table. And so now we have all of these things, all of these bizarre Victorian things for the table. And I have my 1890s etiquette book because, of course, that's what you need to set the table. But my husband, who's a scientist, he says, we need a ruler. Really? Oh, yes, because we have to figure out the diameter of every place setting. Now, a place setting for a Victorian dinner is no joke. It is, it is something mathematical. Every person at this dinner, and I invited 14 people to this dinner, they need five glasses. They need 16 pieces of silverware. <laughs> they need 12 plates to consume this food, right? So my husband says, we lay one out according to your diagram, and we measure, and we space. 
so that it's just, it's perfectly spaced on the table. And this takes two hours. And I think to myself, did the Victorians say the F word to one another this much? But it's done. It is done. And we step back and I look at this table. Now, my dining room is more than 25 feet long. And it has this huge table in the center of it and a huge crystal chandelier. And we had restored this room to an inch of its 1894 life. And at the very end of the room is this eight-foot Christmas tree. And I look down this table, and honestly, I have a historical orgasm. (sighs) I mean, this is Age of Innocence. (sighs) This is better than living in the Ballantine house. And my husband, at this point, has had about enough of the 1890s. So he goes to bed. And I walk to the very back of the house where our kitchen is, and I start day 12 of cooking. Because that's what it takes when you have no servants and you're cooking 14 courses of historic food. And I hear something. I hear something at the front of the house. I hear something in that dining room. And I think he has come downstairs and he is fussing with the table. (laughs) And I am filled with the rage that only a woman the night before a dinner party could possibly, possibly feel. And I do what a good Victorian housewife does. And I say, leave it. It's perfect. Leave it. And I hear all this clinking. He is there. He has that ruler again. (laughs) And now I am possessed. I am Medusa. I have snakes coming out of my head. And I start walking to the front of the house. I am rigid with fury. And I walk towards that room, and I say, Honey? Honey? Kyle? Kyle? And I look up, and it's not Kyle. It's not my husband. I see a woman. I see a woman in a dress, and she is standing by the table. And I hear her walking, and I see her checking this table, making sure that this table is perfect. And I think to myself, is this her? Is this the woman who lived in my house? And this was like her table, and she wanted my table to be as perfect as her table had been. And I back up. I just walk backwards all the way to my kitchen. And 
I turn off the the stove and I put the food away and I turn out the lights and I walk upstairs. And the next night, it's the dinner party and all my friends have come in their Victorian clothing and we managed to churn out 14 courses of food from oysters to that last course, which is a flaming steamed pudding. And we raise that fifth glass at our place setting and we toast to everyone who had lived in the house before us. And when I look back on that night and I think about it, I have spent my whole life trying to recreate the past. I've made a career of trying to understand the past. I'm always reaching out to it. I want to know what it's like. What did it look like? What did it feel like? What did these people feel like? And that year, that Christmas, my gift was that for the first time, for the only time, the past found me. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. I want to say that I have dined at Alexandra's house and was not visited by spirits. Oh. Um, but I think that has to do with me and well, not they don't like the spirits. people than you are. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> I thought it was just because I'm dubious, but I think I like it better that it's my no. smell. You're stinky, just a little. It's just a slight. It's not, and it's not even something that we like. I haven't smelled you. Yeah, I'm yeah. just saying that dogs and ghosts don't like your smell because you have a, like a kind of stinky smell. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. That's what I was think, thinking. It's kind of like how dogs can hear things we can't. Yeah. So dogs and ghosts can smell things on me. <laughs> um, although I have to say, as as we are sharing this, my dog is sitting on my lap, absolutely in love with me. So That's because your dog doesn't have a sense of smell. That's why oh. you guys are a perfect pair. This is not I true. Love, listeners, this is terrible. I love <laughs> all of this. This is awesome. Uh, before we get on to our next story of conjuring, we want to thank Mend Acupuncture, uh, which has two locations in the Baltimore area, and they have acupuncture sessions starting at $35 a pop, and they are very good people. Please visit them and tell them we sent you. So this next storyteller uh, is Violet Glaze. Um, she is a writer and a mom and a, um, wow, I mean, she's a true badass. Uh, every time I see her on the social media, she's um, looking just like on point with uh, like, it's, it, it's punk in its purest form. Uh, it doesn't seem like, you know, hot topic punk or any of the, the, the appropriations of punk as it were, it's like pure punk. And um, yeah, she uh, walks the walk, talks the talk. And the story is an example of exactly Do that. you feel like walking the walk and talking the talk is a good way to describe someone who's pure punk? Well, they're walking the walk and talking the talk of punk. Yes. <laughs> But walking the walk and talking the talk is such a cliche that I feel that someone who's punk would basically throw up being described that way. No, because it, it's, a, it's just means. <clears throat> well, anyway, she's just really cool. She's a lot cooler than me is what I'm trying. That's a long way of saying much cooler than I am. Violet Glaze hears her story. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, so I am no longer Violet Glaze because I divorced Dr. Glaze. Um, and it was a bad divorce, as many of you may have experienced here. And the side effect of which was I swore off love, and I was done with it. I was going to work on my art and my writing and my son. Everything was going to be great from here on out. And uh, I went to a party, and I never believed in love at first sight until it happened to me. Uh, there was this guy there, this kind of tall, rangy, punk rock, Sid Viciously looking guy with this, you know, this fangy grin and like, you know, bike grease under his nails, and and miraculously he felt the same way about me. And we were together for a year, and it was the happiest year of my life. Uh, but I broke up with him for reasons that. Um, I won't get into to protect his privacy, but if I told you these reasons, you would say, yeah, that was the only thing you could do. And um, making that decision uh, was like chewing off my own arm. So they say that it takes half the amount of time that you were with someone to get over them. So I had broken up with them in January, and a whole year had gone through, and I'd done everything to try to get over them. And... January was coming up again, and it didn't even make a dent in how awful I felt. And um, I've been doing, you know, a lot of things, doing a lot of reading, you know, trying to keep myself busy. And I'd been doing some reading about uh, hoodoo, which is a folk magic practice with African-American roots. And if you've ever heard a blues song where they talk about, uh, you know, got my mojo working, or, you know, at the crossroads, or don't look back... That's all terminology that comes from hoodoo. And one of the things you can do in hoodoo is take dirt from someone's grave to cast spells. And it very specific grave. Like if you want protection, you can take dirt from a soldier's grave, for example. And it was about this time that I found out that Nancy Spungen is buried in Ben Salem, Pennsylvania, which is about two hours from here. Um, so... I don't know if you know about Sid and Nancy. They were kind of like the, the punk rock Romeo and Juliet. He was the bassist for the Sex Pistols, and she was his American girlfriend. And they were inseparable, and they adored each other. But they had a pretty chaotic lifestyle because both of them were junkies. And they were living in New York's Hotel Chelsea, and one night he passed out. And when he came to, she'd been stabbed to death. And um, she was 20 at the time, and I think he was also 20. And he was arrested for her murder. Um, it's really sort of unclear about what happened, especially to him. Um, but four months later, while out on bail, he died of a heroin overdose that was probably not accidental. So I got it in my head that on Valentine's Day, I'm going to go to Ben Salem to the grave. And the other thing about that, she died, and his mother wanted to have him buried next to her. And her, she, the, his mother called her mother and asked this, and her mother said no for a number of reasons. One is that it's a Jewish cemetery and Sid wasn't Jewish. And also, um, your son may have murdered my daughter, so <laughs> doesn't really put a parent in a generous mood. So he was cremated. But his mother took a transatlantic flight and snuck into the cemetery and put his ashes on her grave. So I'm going to go to this grave where Sid and Nancy both are in some form or another. And I'm going to take dirt and 
cast a love spell to find me somebody new. So in Hoodoo, you can't just just you know grab a handful of dirt from the ground. You have to pay for it. The traditional way that you pay for it is with whiskey and a silver dime. But so for the dime part, I got a Susan B. Anthony dollar with like a minting in the late 70s because I figured she would recognize that. And for him, I found a five pence coin. And I got like a little, you know, bottle of whiskey. But I had a feeling that they would probably want something else. So, so I talked to a friend of mine who has some contacts in the underground economy. And, <laughs> and I said, can I buy one Oxycontin from you? Can I? And he's like, oh, I don't know if I can get you. I can get you Xanax. I can get you Klonopin. That'll fuck you up pretty good. And I was like, no, no, it's not for me. It's not for me. I, I just need... I need an opiate. And I told him the story. He's like, well, why don't you just buy them heroin? I mean, I can talk to some people. And at that point, I realized that I'm scoring drugs for dead people. And, and my life has really gotten a little more complex than I need it to be right now. So what I did instead was I got some poppy seeds, and I put them in the whiskey, and I kind of made like, you know, like a little tincture for them. So on Valentine's Day, I have all my gifts. Oh, and I also have, like, an empty baby food jar for the dirt that I'm going to collect. I rented a car. I don't own a car, so I rented a car. This is how motivated I am. I get two red roses, and I drive up to Men's Salem. And I get there. It's a a kind of a sparse suburban cemetery. You know, it's like a lot of graveyards have, like, ornate kind of statuary and stuff. This is very modest. Um, And all the graves are just sort of these flat plaques on the ground. And I'm looking around like, I don't even know where to begin. But then one of the workers sees me. And it's like, you know, look at me. And he, <laughs> he yells out of his truck, hey, I know who you're looking for. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, where is she? He's like, she's over there. So, so I go over there, and sure enough, there she is. And there's other little, I'm not the first person to have been there. There's cigarettes and stones since it's a Jewish cemetery and everything. So I've never asked for dirt from a grave before. I don't really know how to do this. So I start with the gifts. I say, hello, Sid. Hello, Nancy. Um, I put the coins in the dirt. I pour out my whiskey bottle. Nobody's watching me, you know. And I say, is it all right if I take dirt from your grave for a love spell? There's no answer. (laughs) So I get my little baby food jar, and I kneel down on the ground. It's, like, all muddy and gross, and I would start scooping in it, and all of a sudden I get this very strong feeling of, like, this no, 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 no. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I dump out that dirt really quick, and the feeling goes away. It's like, that was a little strange. And all of a sudden I get this other residual feeling of, like, somebody really giving me the stink eye of, like, who are you and what do you want? And I think that was Nancy. And I, I kneel down on the ground, and I try to tell her about the guy that I loved and how crazy I was about him and how empty my life is right now and how I've got 30 years to go if I'm lucky. And all I can see is just this parched vista. And maybe she doesn't know what that means, what that feels like, you know, because she died first. But Sid knows what that feels like because he, he could only stand it for four months. And I don't want to die, but I really just want this feeling to go away. And I want you to help me. Please, just find me somebody that, that loved me, that could love me as much as he loved you. Please just help me. And I started crying. And I'm kneeling on the dirt, and 
it's like slushy and muddy and the sky is overcast and it's Valentine's Day and I'm sobbing in a graveyard by myself. And there's nothing. I get no feeling. She's not interested in helping me. And then I feel really pathetic and stupid and kind of creeped out, to be honest. And I just want to go home. So I get up and I dust my hands off and I turn around to leave. I'm walking back to the car and I'm just thinking, man, that did not go the way I wanted it to. And all of a sudden I get this very strong come back, come back, come back, come back, come back kind of feeling. And I'm like, honestly, that's the last thing I want to do right now. But this feeling persists. Come back, come back, come back, come back. I'm like, fine, all right, all right. I turn around and I'm walking back to the grave and I honestly don't know why I'm doing this. I get to within five paces of her grave when it hits me. She wants me to bring her more drugs. And I say out loud, no, I'm not bringing you more drugs. Happy Valentine's Day. And I leave. So the thing is now, after this experience, when I go to graveyards, the dead talk to me all the time because I think they know I can hear them. And this uh, November, I went out to L.A. for the first time, and I went to Hollywood Forever Cemetery, which is where a lot of movie stars are buried. And Rudolph Valentino talked to me. Vampira talked to me. She told me to leave her alone, but I think that was, that was a conversation. Um, Didi Ramon is nice in the afterlife. And the thing is, if I was still with this guy, I never would have learned that I could do that because he was this super hyper-rational atheist and he thought that any kind of you know, spiritual woo-woo was just self-delusion. And even, I still have a hard time explaining this to people because they're like, well, what do you mean that the dead talk to you? I said, it's hard to explain. It's not always. Sometimes it's just kind of a thought that pops in my head. And sometimes it's really like they sort of grab me and they want, they want me to look at them right where they are. And as I was leaving the cemetery that day, that happened for the first time. I was just walking back to my car and all of a sudden it was like this, look. And there's a large tombstone down on the ground. It was a married couple. And they... They died older, like in their 70s. But written on the stone, it said, we met on Valentine's Day, and we were married on New Year's Eve. And when you're with the person that you're really meant to be with, every day is Valentine's Day, and every night is New Year's Eve. So this Valentine's Day, I got my whiskey, I got my dime, I got my two roses, and I'm going to rent a car, and I'm going to go see them. So, thank you. the time that Violet shared this story um, and she was very open about this she was just going through like a heartbreak and that really gosh the story if it was told by anyone else would be like kind of maybe funnier or unbelievable or but she I just I believed every single thing that she said in that story I believe it happened absolutely in the way that she said it did yeah she's amazing I agree She, as a wise woman said, walks the walk and talks the talk. Um, And we walk the walk and talk the talk on the wine source. And 
Golden West. Uh, we walk ourselves there quite often <laughs> and do a little talking while we're there. Uh, the Wine Source is a wonderful wine, beer, and snacks supplier in Hamden. And Golden West is an Omni restaurant with a vegan forward menu also in Hamden. So visit both of them and tell them we sent you. You can visit us at soupstorytelling.com to learn about upcoming events such as our live indoor in-person show tonight. Um, or you can listen to stories from our 15-year archive of True Personal Tales. Please leave us a review wherever you get your podcast content. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Soup Storytelling Series. Thanks to Maureen Harvey for producing and to y'all for listening. We will be back soon with more stories from the soup. The virgin of-